Amen. <coughs> Forgive me for my cough today. I'll make it through this uh, as we get to preach and talk together about what you just heard read. That was God's word. Amen. Amen. And uh, may God write it on our hearts. We, we say that often because we believe we can hide God's word in our heart. The Bible says in Psalm 119 that we may not sin against him. You know, every good gift and every perfect gift that we have is from above. Uh, it comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Those are the words of James, the brother of Jesus, that he wrote in his letter. James was a great leader who will emerge in the church that we just heard about and read about in that passage you just heard. Good gifts, perfect gifts, or as our text says this morning, great grace comes from God. They're precious things of God. God the Father who gives to humanity uh, whom he loves. God is a father and he loves us like a father, a good father who uh, loves us and provides for us. This morning we studied the recorded example of a community, a, a church marked by the grace of God. We should study this passage with bated breath, with expectation, with hope that God's great grace that is in this passage, it can and does continue to fill our churches, our community, and this church, we pray, in the same way. Great grace in our life has many results. This morning, we're going to uncover four of those together as we look at this verse by verse together. First, we're going to see that great grace when you have great grace, it grants unity to the church. Second, we'll see that great grace guides. It doesn't just grant unity. It also guides the mission of the church. Thirdly, we'll see that great grace governs our personal plans. And finally, great grace gives an example for us to follow. Great grace grants, it guides, it governs, and it gives all of this from God's grace. Let's talk first about how great grace in our lives grants unity to the church. <coughs> our first verse that you just heard, um, read just now by Brittany, shows that this church had amazing unity. Did you see it? It said that they were of one heart, one soul. And no one valued their preferences over their relationships that they had with one another. When we hear that, we should say, wow, <laughs> that's a pretty amazing thing. You know, for me and you, it is sad that our experiences often in the church, in America, and especially in the South, specifically in the Bible Belt, we are, our churches are so often, I feel like, marked by very different experiences, different language than what's used here. Now, can you appreciate the unity of this church with, that's, that's in the text here without having uh, seen personally the disunity of other churches? Well, the answer is yes, you can. Uh, our failed example of churches today doesn't take away from this church as an example. The unity that they have truly stands alone. I mean, after all, it's the first example we have in Scripture of what a Christian church does together. However, I think it shines even brighter to those of us 
who have felt the sting of a disunited and ununified church community. Unity in a church is really a social experiment uh, with God's grace at the center, if we're being honest. And like any social experiment, nothing is more important than for that group or that community to stay centered on their goal. That's the hope that any group has. If a community or any community really loses sight of its goal, of its center focus, they begin to drift. You lose sight of what's in the center of what you're going after and you begin to drift. And drift begins to lead people to differences. They recognize their differences more. Differences then begin going unaddressed and that eventually leads us to sin against one another. This is what disunity is. Sins of self-righteousness. I do it this way, you should do it that way. This is the way it is, that's the way I think it is. Leads to pride. Self-righteousness is pride. And the Bible is very clear. Pride unchecked leads to destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. We've seen it. Rarely have we seen unity like this, but we've seen disunity in churches. It's no secret. I mean, Luke, we're going to see in just a moment, even tells it from the negative himself. He says what they don't say in this group. Because most of the time we realize unity uh, doesn't come easily. Let me give you an example of a, a story of a failed unity in a church. Down in Houston and on Bowman Road, there's a church you could go to today that in the 1980s and 90s, it was a, 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 a booming church. It was filled to the brim. I had the opportunity to go preach in this church before planting this church, before uh, with all of you doing the start here at Redemption. I went down to this church and, <coughs> excuse me, I learned its history. It had had that wonderful period of preaching the gospel and, in fact, you know, having unity and, and really just changing people's lives there in North Houston. But by the early 2000s, infighting had begun. There was a lot of fighting that happened in the church. Um, there was a white flight happened. The, the demographics around the church changed and many people in the church began to move out to the suburbs and a predominantly white church and, and surrounding them was a predominantly minority groups. And, uh, you know, they, they fled. And uh, after that, the church just started, you know, Shrinking, And before you knew it, uh, the way they told it to me was they had a plague of pastors coming and going, coming and going. The church dwindled down. One family, by the time I showed up there to preach, was there in a church that sat 300 people. I remember visiting with that man who was in charge. It was me, and I preached to him and three other people, four people, in a church that seats 300 in the middle of Houston with hundreds of thousands of people. Now, this was bothersome to me. It really made me confused. And I asked the man, I said, what's going on here? And you know what he gave me a testimony to? He pointed back to those years. He said, we used to have unity and all these awesome things. And then he told me the story I just told you. But he ended up complaining. I asked him, I said, what about all these people that are around the church? Why doesn't the church simply just you know, go and invite them? The man began to tell me how they're different than they are. And uh, that's hard. Every single time I talked to him about, what about preaching the gospel? What about you know, going out? It was, oh, this excuse, this excuse, this excuse. And all of it pointed to a time when there was unity, but then things slipped away. Finally, I got to the heart of the matter, and I said, you know, uh, do you think you guys would ever grow if you, you, know, if you just continue to think how you have to do things like you always did? And the man looked me in the eye, and he said, when this key doesn't fit that door, that's the day we do things differently. 
And I remember leaving that church thinking, wow, they're headed straight for death. And they don't even know it. All of this because they began to drift away from what gives the church unity. What gives the church unity? Unity matters. It matters. And we see here the full number of the church in Jerusalem had it. I mean, it is a phenomenal opening sentence when you, re- when you consider that 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, were regularly meeting in this place, in this new covenant community, and they had this kind of unity. It's sad that stories like Bowman Road exist all over the place. Even in our own city, they exist. But the hope we can have as we model the Bible it's, is here in our text. There is wonderful testimony in these words. For it is only the Lord who can cause true unity among such a massive and diverse group of people. The Bible says that they were one heart and one soul. It shows that they were united in the truth. And that unity in truth was producing in them a love. A love for God and a love for one another. Boyce is a commentator who points out that regarding the unity they have, it looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. It's literally, it looks like God is almost recreating uh, uh, his plan to have unity. There's no thorns and thistles. All that they're planting and sowing seems to be full and ripe. Their relationships are blossoming. They are growing in what? Great grace. Great grace grants unity to the church. They are walking in the fulfilled prayers that Jesus himself prayed for them. You know, in John 17, Jesus said this. He said, Father, talking to God, he said, I do not ask for these only, these leaders here, but also for those who will believe uh, in me through their word. Listen to what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The great grace of God gives this church unity because it's a testimony between the unity that God has in himself within the Trinity, the perfect love that God has. Jesus prayed for their great unity and they have it. Notice in this verse, Luke chooses to report on this in the negative. He said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now ask yourself, why state it negatively to show how they're willing to give up all that they have? Let me tell you why. Because here's what's natural in man. Natural man is bent on raising his own kingdom. We build our own kingdoms. Making our own money. Being independent of need. Natural man loves to line his pockets with wealth. Filling his house with trinkets and goods. Our natural disposition is to keep rather than to give away. We naturally say things like, I'm sorry, uh, that is mine. Please return it. I'm sorry, please give that to me. No, 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 put that back. That's mine. Don't touch that. We are selfish long before we are selfless. We respond quickly, not with generous hearts that say, yes, you may have it, please take it, but rather the opposite. And so Luke is presenting to us proof of a changed heart. He's saying, no one among us was saying, that's mine, you can't have it. It was rather the exact opposite. He states it in the negative. Luke underscores the radical 
generosity that marked the first New Testament church. And it's an example to be followed. They were willing to consider the needs of others before their own. And a marked example of Christ to the watching world. Ask yourself today if you possess this mark personally. Does RBC, does our church have this kind of unity? It's only God's grace. His great grace can grant it. Second, we see something else in the text that great grace doesn't just grant unity to them. It also guides the mission, okay? So the second point is great grace guides the mission of the church. Look at verse 33 with me. Look at the text. It said, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Uh, The word megas, uh, where we get the word mega, you know, mega uh, or great, is used twice in this verse. And it's the reason for the sermon title today. The grace of God was great upon them all. And it brought unity like we've seen. But here we see it also brings great power to their mission as a church. Now, what, we, what mission was that? Well, it was the mission to preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They wanted to preach the gospel in everything they did. They wanted to testify to anyone listening through all that they were doing that God came to the earth as a humble servant, as Jesus Christ That God, as Jesus Christ, was tried through temptation. Just like we have all faced temptation, he faced every temptation but was without sin. They want to preach that God was murdered on a cross. A sinner's punishment in the place of sinners. That he was laid in the grave dead as a result of dying for sin. That he was beat. And he was beat down into the point of death but that he beat death. They want to preach that he beat death like nobody else can or has or will until he raises them. And he resurrected and he went back to his father in heaven and presented himself on our behalf. They want to preach the gospel. What I just told you, this is the gospel. The hope of eternal life for every person. Those who hear it, they they repent of their sin and they believe it by faith. The gospel was their motivation. Okay? The great grace guided their mission. Their mission was to preach the gospel. It impacted every area of their life, transforming all of them present into living testimonies right where they were. With what they had, with the way they thought, with what they said. So as a church, they are in white-hot pursuit of God. They are after the mission that God has called them to. That, I, I want you to understand, in the New Testament church right here, from the lowest gardener among them and servant to the preacher like Peter that we see and John in the text, they're all witnessing to God's great grace. All of them. They've all been made witnesses. And that's their mission. It is the church's task until Christ returns or calls us home to preach the gospel. Some people have relegated gospel preaching um, and witnessing to preachers only. Some have done that, even from texts like this. They They have said that preachers officially must do it. But we need to see that the great power and the great grace was upon them all. Look in your text. It was on them all, not just the apostles and leaders. It was their commitment, all of them, their passion. 
to participate in this. The church here increases beyond 5,000. From here on out, it's just going to be called a great multitude. It's innumerable. And the reason why is because everyone, top down, bottom, uh, top to bottom, we're committed to preaching the gospel. Let me ask you a question this morning. How are you doing? How are we doing in our pursuit of God to preach the gospel in our lives today in and around our church? Does your personal proclamation of the gospel support the preached gospel that's preached in your church? Christians need to ask themselves this. Are we aware that the way that we live alongside one another before the lost world, in the workplace, that it does promote great grace? Does it fuel a relationship with Jesus Christ that can affect others? We assist the preaching of the gospel. Now, you may say, how can I? How can I preach the gospel? I'm weak in the faith. This morning, you may say to me, how can I preach the gospel without more knowledge, without theology, without a degree like a pastor would have or, 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 or a theologian or a seminarian. You may ask me this morning, how can, I have, how can I preach the gospel with such great cost to my friendships or my work relationships? How can I overcome their judgments? Or you may say this, how can I preach the gospel? I'm too great of a sinner. I'm too much of a sinner. Listen to me, nonsense. That's nonsense. Oh, you of little faith. You must trust that the great power has never ceased to be available to the people of God. It's never ceased. The people of God who humbly walk in the great grace that God has given them. It is one to one. We should pursue it. Are you weak this morning? Listen to me. Let his word give you strength. Are you lacking knowledge? Good. Let his church teach you wisdom. We're in this together. Are you lonely? Experiencing the loss of worldly friendships? Well, good, forsake them and let God's people become closer friends than a worldly relationship has ever been. This is the truth. Are you a great sinner? I got great news. He is full of great grace and mercy. You cannot out the love of God. God's great power and God's great grace is at work even in the small tasks of life. Christians need to hear this. When it comes to, you know, the mission the church had, I love that this text doesn't have someone standing and preaching. It has people getting together and having meals and spending time and giving each other their, their monetary money and blessing, helping each other. They make every moment holy. I once read A.W. Tozer in this book, The Pursuit of God. Toward the end of it, he says that it's not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It's not what he does. It's why he does it. The, the motive is everything. Tozer says, let a man or a woman sanctify the Lord God in their heart and, and he or she can thereafter do no common act. In other words, you sanctify God in your heart, you set apart to do something, to promote the kingdom of God, to pursue unity, to preach the gospel, and you do that thing with that purpose, God transforms it. All that then you do is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ when it has that in its center. I, I wonder, do you understand this about our, your life in Christ? Does your hope in God's mission to save the lost, does it lead you to sanctifying your everyday normal workings of life? You see, we've boiled preaching the gospel down to an event so often. And that's not the full context of a church that preaches the gospel. Yes, we want to invite our lost friends here and let them hear and preach the gospel to them. But we also want to do it over folded laundry. And we want to do it over breakfast. And we want to do it over dinners. And we want to do it over coffee visits. 
Why? Because God is working in those monotony and those monotonous things. Trust me, friend, if you do not turn to the great grace of God in your normal everyday workings of life and have a hope that even in the way you, you do these small things every day, the same thing, uh, that he's using it you know, to preach the gospel, if you don't believe that, you know what you'll end up with? You'll end up with a, a life that's marked by sin, anxiety, depression, boredom, fear, worry, episodic anger and rage, jealousy, covetousness. Those are just a few things that want to replace faithful obedience to Christ. They latch on to your faculties of mind. They prevent you from seeing every opportunity to testify like the apostles and the people in our text did. But be not distracted. The Bible says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust God. Let his great grace put to death such sins. So his great grace unifies the church. It also guides the church. So it grants unity. It guides the church and its mission. Now, thirdly, see with me that the great grace of God in this text, it governs our personal plans. Excuse me. It governs our personal plans. Look in verse 34 and 35. It says that there was not a needy person among them, not a single one. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, when I read this, I think, man, this seems like hyperbole, right? I mean, surely this is an exaggeration. But it's not. It's meant to be taken seriously by the reader. They had people with present needs and difficulties, just like everybody has present needs and difficulties. But those who were stronger were helping those who were weaker. And it was happening, and the details are included, that they liquidated, that they, they, they created actual money from their assets and their investments, from their wealth, that they, they saw their savings accounts as being used by God's glory rather than storing it up in their own way. These were real monetary donations that these people were making to the church. Why? Because of its reach and its influence. They saw the poor. They saw the stricken. They saw the difficulty. They saw those who were homeless, and they provided shelter. They saw the poor, and they provided food and drink. Great grace was taking center stage over what they possessed. Now, redistribution of wealth by, by one's own choice, it's a deeply spiritual matter uh, when we understand it biblically. Not only here, but other pa passages of Scripture that call you to be generous. Um, it, 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 is, uh, it is something that God does in the heart to a believer. It's a natural progression. We understand we've been given much, so we understand that we can give, and we should. Scripture is clear that we must give according to our own generous hearts and within the means that God has given us. What you need to understand about this group is there was no uh, rule of law among this group. There was the rule of love. That's what ruled them. God's love flowed into them in their new birth and through them into their desires so that even their wealth came under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing is out of bounds when it comes to the rule of the Spirit in our lives. If God grants us land or house, car or clothes, food or drink, we must see these things as a gift of His grace 
if we see everything as a gift of God's grace, we will hold them differently. Stewardship is all about God loosening our grip on the things we think we need so that we're willing to give up all that we think we need so that he'll provide all that we need. By that kind of heart, God can change people's lives. Some people have wrongly looked at this passage and they've envisioned envisioned some precursor to socialism or, or communism developing here in some way. But that's not the case for a few reasons. First of all, notice that there's no pool of funds that's mentioned. It's just simply need-based. A need appears, someone meets it, right? Secondly, there is also no law that's requiring anyone to sell their property. They're not saying you're only a Christian if you sell everything you have and follow Jesus. No one's saying that. There's no law uh, like that. It specifically shows that it says anyone has need. No other church in Acts ends up doing it like they do here. Another reason why we shouldn't take this as, you know, prescriptive law and make, make it a, a, a rule that church members have to have everything in common. We have to understand that at this time there were many Jews there who were normally not there. They had came for the festival at Pentecost and then God saved them and brought them together. So they have needs. They don't have homes. So there's a specific context. <clears throat> it's also really important to note that... Um, All of the church agreed that any of these gifts that came to the church, they were to be brought and they were to be placed under the authority and the oversight of the apostles. So leadership was very important here. The responsibility uh, to distribute the need to the needy is eventually going to pass from the apostles to seven men that they appoint, so still under their, their oversight. But the point is it remained a responsibility of the church leadership. So it wasn't just uh, you know, rampant and kind of wild giving, like spontaneously. Rather, it was as need appeared and as it was under the leadership of these men. Now, all these facts, you know what they do? They keep us from legalism in studying this passage. Our hearts want a rule, always. We want a rule, but we need to see that the only rule present in this text for them is the rule of love. That's what leads them to be uh, this great, you know, this government that they had. There was this governing happening. So it's necessary for us to see that this is not something prescriptive and binding, but rather it's an example. Honestly, you're supposed to read this and be inspired. It should inspire you. Does your heart bind itself to your possessions? Ask yourself. Your clothes. Your iPhone. Your house. Your things. In a negative way. It can. It's possible, right? We say things like, I earned this with my hard work. I did this for me. I deserve this. I, 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 I. When we read this text, we should see, I, oh, now I, I see the issue. Me. That's the only thing standing between me and God being the ultimate government. Is me. Nothing in Scripture prevents you from gaining wealth and riches in your life. Hear me out. Nothing uh, in Scripture would, 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 would uh, prohibit you or, or say you should never try to be wealthy or rich. But you know what Scripture does? It warns us. It warns us. You see, you can become a serious opponent to God's gracious generosity when you pursue riches. The warnings are clear. It was Jesus who said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is it so hard? Here's why. Because our heart is a factory of idol making. 
That's what John Calvin said, and he's right. We are, uh, we are, our heart is like a, a factory making idols. And uh, everything we have, every single possession can become an idol. You see, we were built to worship and crave something before you have it. You always crave something before you have anything. And when a natural man gets something, uh, we make it an idol. You love it. You love it in an unhealthy way. And it, and it, and it, and it, and it, gives, um, it gives you unnatural things. You know, watch any child. You see this in children so easily. Watch any child at a birthday party. The, the last thing that a child will do when they open up a brand new Paw Patrol toy or something that they love is as soon as they open it, turn to their friend and say, hey, I want to give this to you. Here, it's yours. You can have it. Take it home. That doesn't happen at birthday parties. Right? No way. I mean, maybe give it three weeks when the toy's like beaten and bruised, and then the kid may come up with some deal to trade it for another thing that they want. Right? Our inclination is not generosity. Our nature is great sin that leads to great selfishness. That's what we do in our own, in our own sin. We hoard. But we see in our text that it is only great grace that can lead to great selflessness. Less of me, more of God's plan. The great grace of God was the governor of this church's plans and possessions. Now, there's a beautiful picture here. Okay, so great grace granted unity to them. Great grace guided their mission. Great grace governed their plans and their possessions. And then lastly, in closing, we see great grace gives them an example to follow. Now, we've already had examples to follow. This entire section is that. But we see in closing a Lucan hero, okay? Uh, a specific name drop happens, a tangible example. Someone who in the future resurrection you and I will get to see in heaven. It's no longer arbitrary. Me and you, if you believe in Christ, when we're raised on the last day, we will get to hang out with this guy that's mentioned in the text, Mr. Joseph, Mr. Son of Encouragement, Barnabas. And he shows us that God, God's great grace gives us examples that we can actually follow. Look in 36 and 37 with me in closing this morning. Thus Joseph, it says, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, <laughs> sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what, what explains Luke's over-the-top description and explanation as to who this guy is. He must be important, right? Well, look, he is. We know a lot about this brother from studying him beyond this little introduction. Excuse me. He will continue as a faithful example before us. And he lays here and becomes uh, somewhat, uh, he gets laid out here as somebody who is going to be a very, a pillar, a monumental figure in the early church. His name appears again and again throughout Acts. So be watching for this guy, Mr. Barnabas. He shows up here and in various letters in the New Testament. And he's always spoken of in a positive light. There's really only one reference to Barnabas in the scripture that could be understood negatively about him. Paul mentions him in Galatians 2.13. Uh, he mentions him as being led astray with the rest of the Jews. They were acting like hypocrites uh, when Peter, uh, with Peter, uh, with the, when the circumcision party showed up in Antioch. 
But other than that, other than that temptation to not walk in step with the gospel, the short list of achievements of Barnabas are really amazing and lands him among some of the top characters in the New Testament that we can see obeying God and then try to model our lives after. In our text, we see that the apostles renamed him. Uh, They actually started calling him, which is very common to rename with nicknames, but they named him, you know, the the common name Joseph, they changed that to the name Barnabas because of how encouraging he was. This is a personal note by Luke that he includes for us, the reader, to understand about Barnabas. Okay, we need to keep our eye on this man. He's an example And he's soon to be contrasted with next week's sermon. He's going to be contrasted with two people who do not excel in unity, who do not understand the great grace of God. But for this week, he's one laid out before us as an example. We learn that he's a Levite. You see that? He's of the tribe of Levi. Well, Deuteronomy 10 and Numbers 18 actually say that Levites weren't supposed to own land like this. Uh, But in this time, clearly there had been some, uh, it was a mute point by the New Testament time. Also, we learn that he's probably a Hellenistic uh, or a Greek-influenced Jew, Jewish man. And he's in in this island, Cyprus, which is near there. And, uh, you know, a lot of the the Jews lived there at this time. We don't know whether uh, the land he sold was there or whether it was near Palestine, near Israel. But you know what we do know? It seemed to be a notable large sum because of example, his example was reported to us. Now, when it says that he's a son of encouragement, his nickname, it means son of consolation. So some renderings read it that way. And, and here's what it means. It means to console another, lift up the spirits of another, help another, encourage those who are weaker. A man like Barnabas is a man who gives himself again and again and again. He gives himself over and over again to those who are weaker, to those who are outcasts, to those who are vulnerable. Over and over again, he, he, he serves others. He always puts their needs before his own. When other people tire out or get frustrated by the constant weakness that's in others, Barnabas doesn't. He's the guy who's there, not giving up on them. Barnabas encouraged John Mark when no one else did. Now, that that name might might not mean anything to you. But go read the Gospel of Mark. You know why you can read it? Because Mark faithfully penned it. He did that later in his life. You know why? Because he was a faithful witness. But guess what? You know what? Before that, when he was discouraged, you know who believed in him? Barnabas. Hey, there's a guy in Scripture named Paul. You ever heard of him? Saul becomes Paul, becomes the greatest missionary of all times, writes more than half of your New Testament Bible. Yeah, guess what? When no one believed in this murderer turned Christian named Saul, guess who went and found him? Barnabas. Barnabas. Without Barnabas, we don't have more than 48% of the New Testament. Because guys who God needed and and, uh, used, God didn't really need them, but he used, decided to use to write the very words of Scripture that you and I bank on. God used those guys. Why? Because of Barnabas. Barnabas found them. Barnabas stayed with them when other people were given up. This son of encouragement raised up many sons in the faith. He was the guy that nobody talked about. He was the guy who was in the back, in the background, quick to grab the, what looked to be weak and struggling believer, the, the one who was barely holding on. I can't imagine how many funerals 
were spoken in the early church where Barnabas' name was brought up. And it wasn't until a person he had served and loved had died and gone on to be with the Lord that then you hear, hey, the whole time, who held their weak arms up? Barnabas. I can't imagine how many times this brother's name was mentioned. Do you know someone like this? Or better question, are you someone like this? Christians, hear me. Our example is here before us. Barnabas is not just a man of integrity because he sold, some, sold a field and gave some money to the church. That doesn't make you qualified to lead a church to have enough money to do something or to have enough business savvy or to be some you know, structurally minded businessman. Those don't make good leaders in the church. And the church thinks that sometimes today, but it shouldn't. What marks a man apart to be a leader in the church is mentioned here. A willingness to lay everything at the feet of Jesus. He sees Jesus is the Lord of the church. He sees the leaders of the church. He takes a field. He sells it so that others can be fed and clothed and, and taken care of in Jerusalem. And then he lays it all at the feet of the apostles. This man is an example. Barnabas is a lot like John the Baptist. He believes he'll decrease and Jesus will increase, and that's enough. He wants to die and be forgotten so that everybody can continue to remember Jesus' name. He's an encouragement to me. I pray he is to you. He had great grace, great grace, and he ends up being a, a final example in our text for us. You see, friends, the great grace of God is the only thing that can bring unity to the church. The great grace of God is the only thing that guides the mission of the church. Which remember, we said is the preaching of the gospel. If you're, Christian, if, you're not, if you're here today and you don't believe the gospel, the church has done what the church is supposed to do to you this morning. Preach to you. Repent. Believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus can forgive you of your sins. He will. He will. And then come lay your whole life at his feet. We preach the gospel. Why? Because it's God's great grace that guides that mission. Thirdly, it was God's great grace that governs our plans. He sets up government and he, and he, and he leads us. And finally, seen in Barnabas, great grace gives examples to follow. I pray that if you're here this morning and you don't have an example to follow, I pray that our church, that we would say this to each other, that we would say, follow me while I follow Christ. We need God's great grace if we're going to make such bold claims, don't we? The good news is we have it. The church has God's great power and God's great grace. They had it then, we have it today. Let me pray as we close, and then we will sing and do some more praying together as a church, right? Pray with me. Father God, we come to you in prayer asking for the great grace, asking for the great power again. Lord, we know that every perfect gift comes from you. Will you grant now that we could see it in our own lives, Lord? Father, will you free our time? Lord, let us see that all of our time belongs to you and let us not be too wearied or too tired when we have to give a little bit more time to study, a little bit more time to ministry. God, make us like Barnabas, willing to give everything, even our own lands, our own houses, our own, our own tables, God, for your name's sake. God, we're weary. Make us great in grace. Lord, I pray that as we think about what it means to be great in grace, God, that you would help us Help the struggling wanderer in the center this morning. God, if somebody's here and doesn't believe, as we sing about your hope and the hope of the gospel, God, give them faith. Grant them peace. Lord, in all of the things we have need for today, 
we acknowledge you. We ask for your great grace in Jesus' name. Amen.